Turkish prosecutors have formally charged 20 Saudi nationals over the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The COVID-19 crisis continues in Morocco. Breaking news coming to us out of Israel where Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his main rival Benny Gantz have just agreed to form an emergency unity government. The main policy items on its agenda is applying Israeli sovereignty over parts of the West Bank. Good morning. Hello, welcome to Dispatch, a weekly podcast from Middle East Eye's Global Newsroom. Today we're talking about the media war raging between Saudi Arabia and Turkey and who its casualties are. We're also talking about the wife of a West Saharan activist pleading with Morocco's government to release political prisoners amid the coronavirus pandemic. And in Israel, after more than a year of political deadlock, a unity government is formed at last between two fierce rivals. But at what cost? My name is Mohammed Hassan. I'm joined by three of my esteemed colleagues from the far stretches of the world to talk about this week's biggest stories from the Middle East and beyond. Joining me today is roving Middle East Eye journalist Amanda Thomas-Johnson, our Turkey correspondent Ragib Soylu, and Israeli journalist and MEE columnist Miron Rappaport. Welcome to you all. Thank you guys for being here today. In recent years, Turkey and Saudi Arabia have pursued an often bitter regional rivalry, to say the least, with their governments fighting over the role of de facto leader for both the Middle East and the Muslim world. The latest chapter of this has been playing out over the last few weeks in the form of a media war between both countries. Ragib Soylu, if I can begin with you, what is going on right now between these two countries, between Turkey and Saudi Arabia? I mean, Turkey released an indictment on the killing of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi in March. And since the release of the indictment, Saudi government and especially the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman got really angry because the indictment itself is targeting one of his close associates, whose name is Saudi Al-Qahtani. He used to lead the social media strategy for him and he was also advising him on foreign policy. So Turkey indicted him. So that started some sort of a, a media war, as you suggested, between Turkey and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia started it by blocking uh, Turkish state-run news outlets like Anadolu Agency and TRT World on April 13. And Turkey responded to that uh, on April 19 by blocking all Saudi-affiliated news outlets. I mean, even the private ones deemed to be close to Saudi government are blocked, such as uh, Okaz Daily in Saudi Arabia or... Uh, independent Turkish, which is a Saudi-founded outlet as a private entity, they're all blocked. Now, is this the first time that these tensions between Turkey and Saudi Arabia have played out in the media landscape? As far as I know, yes. Um, before, of course, there were like multiple publications, you know, uh, broadcasting, publishing criticism about each government. But in terms of the blocking websites and going after uh, the, this kind of uh, websites on internet, first time it happened. But there is an interesting thing happened here. I mean, in, in case of independent Turkish, I think uh, the Turkish government decided to ban it after a Saudi royal on Okaz Daily uh, last week uh, published an article saying that they're using independent Turkish as a venue to bring the war to opponent's land because they were trying to use independent Turkish to disseminate Saudi talking points in, in Turkish, because independent Turkish is broadcasting and publishing on, it's on internet in, in Turkish. I think that was some sort of a tipping point for Turkish officials to ban also independent Turkish. Now, obviously, you know, you mentioned the indictment and the Jamal Khashoggi trial, and that, you know, when it happened in 2018, that was really the heights of the tensions uh, in recent times between both countries. 
But is that where those tensions began? Of course, there are like uh, regional tensions since the uh, blockage imposed on Qatar between on Turkey and Saudi Arabia. Saudis were extremely angry at Turkey for deploying military troops to Qatar in order to prevent the royal coup. Uh, Turks were really uh, afraid of uh, some sort of a Saudi-backed uh, government coup would happen in, in, in Qatar. And then uh, Saudis just, you know, started to use other venues to go after uh, Turkey, especially in, you can see it in, in Libya, in Syria. And regionally speaking, Turkey's uh, perceived support for Muslim Brotherhood and, and Saudis, you know, discontent with that. It also increased uh, the, the tensions between two governments. And now you, you see that it's, it's playing out everywhere. I mean, you see that Saudis are, are blaming Turkey in Libya. They're blaming them in Yemen. They're blaming them in Qatar. They're blaming them in Syria. Whatever Turkey does now is kind of sort of pursued by the Saudi government, something against their own existence. If we can talk about a different uh, story playing out in Turkey this week while I've got you here, actually, there was a report in the New York Times that accused the Turkish government of downplaying or even covering up the, the true scale of the coronavirus spread. Now, officially, there are close to 100,000 cases reported in Turkey at the moment with more than 2,000 deaths. But is this actually not the real figure? I mean, it's a general problem. It's not uh, like a Turkey problem per se. The New York Times, the next day, they published a graphic showing that from Spain to France and Netherlands, everyone is like reporting less deaths than the death notices itself. Because, you know, you make a test for the casualty and the past test shows that the person is positive. You just add them to the tally for the coronavirus deaths. But if the, the case, you know, if the patient didn't test, didn't test positive, then you just don't put them there. So uh, I think uh, we are still uh, early, very early to understand uh, how this virus works and whom should be added to the tally in terms of, you know, being a, a positive for the virus. And secondly, the uh, New York Times data was based on uh, the, the burial notices in Istanbul. And Turkish health minister the other day was on TV and was saying that, you know, because there has been a lockdown imposed in Istanbul, people weren't be, weren't be able to, you know, take their loved ones when they die out of Istanbul because, because Istanbul is a metropole. A lot of people just take their deaths and get them their original home, hometowns in Anatolia and other parts of Turkey. So that, that increased also these burial notices in Istanbul. So that's why it looks like they're covering or something. But I also uh, find some, some sort of, I find it very problematic that New York Times was like, you know, not just reporting that, okay, there is like this absurd, some sort of uh, disparency between the official numbers and the burial notices, but they just uh, built their own story uh, with the allegation that Turkey was cooking up the numbers. I mean, I mean, if you're making such allegation, at least your numbers should be transparent. But when I look at their numbers, I don't see any credible statistics over there. They don't reference their sources for the numbers. Coronavirus mücadelemizde her yeni gün daha iyiyiz, daha ilerideyiz. Elimizdeki veriler bize salgının kontrolümüz altında olduğunu gösteriyor. Ancak bu kontrol siz tedbirleri esnetirseniz bir anda boş bir umuda dönebilir. We are staying with the topic of the coronavirus. Morocco has been one of the worst affected countries in Africa so far. An increasingly concerning story in Morocco is the potential for the virus to spread inside the kingdom's overcrowded prisons, many filled with political prisoners and land rights activists. Amanda, if I can 
talk to you now. Uh, you've been working on a story with regards to these activists uh, and political prisoners in Morocco's prisons. Tell us how serious the situation is right now in these prisons. Well, um, you know, Morocco has very overcrowded uh, prisons. Um, in 2018, um, there were about 80,000, more than 80,000 people in Morocco's prisons. Um, and they were overcrowded by something like 100 and over 130%. Um, so overcrowding is a very serious issue. Now, when you have people obviously packed together, jam-packed together, it only takes um, one instance of coronavirus to spread, um, you know, rapidly through those prisons. Um, and many people are obviously afraid that that's going to be the case. Um, within the last week, there have been cases reported in prisons from Marrakesh or Zazit um, across the country. Um, and people are becoming increasingly worried um, that it's going to devastate um, these overcrowded prisons. Now, and, and as with the case of many countries, Morocco uh, has been releasing prisoners over the last few weeks. Um, I think up to 5,000 prisoners were released. But, the, you know, activists and, and, uh, and human rights uh, voices have been saying that a lot of these people aren't, you know, the, uh, the political activists that have been in jail, some of them for years, if not decades. You've been speaking to the wife of one of these activists. Uh, tell us about what she's been telling you. So I, so I, I spoke to Khadi Bani, who is um, the wife of Mohammed Bani. Um, who is one of um, the 25 men um, which were imprisoned um, as a result of taking part in the Gidem um, Izik protests back in 2010. The Gidem Izik has gone down, um, you know, in the sort of Western Sahara, Sahwari um, sort of political history as, 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 the, as, as the third intifada. Thousands thousands of people camped out in the desert and it was seen as a major um, show of defiance um, against the occupation of Western Sahara um, back in 2010. What's happened is that her husband um, was given um, a life sentence. Um, you know, she says that he was just, a, you know, a sort of peaceful um, protester. Um, and there are serious allegations of torture and, and even of, um, you know, defendants being made to sign confessions um, which were not brought into the case. Um, and right now he's serving a sentence um, close to, um, clo you know, close to Marrakesh. She's now appealed from Morocco to release prisoners um, which are being kept all over the country um, because she's afraid um, that it's only a matter of time uh, before the virus reaches him. Um, when she spoke to him last Friday, um, her husband, Mohammed, um, told her um, that he's also worried about this. He's heard on radio that there are cases popping up at prisons, um, you know, throughout Moroccan territory. Um, and he's afraid that it's only a matter of time before it reaches his. Has there been any indication so far that the Moroccan government is looking at these prisoners, these political prisoners? No. Um, so far, we haven't been able to tell that they are looking specifically at these political prisoners. Um, as I said, um, the government has, you know, released 5,000, but there's still, you know, 75, 80,000 80, people um, still out there. Um, so, you know, we're, you know, we're, look, we're looking at things, um, but so far the government haven't made any sort of indication that they're releasing these political prisoners in particular. Can you give us a little bit of a background uh, to this land rights dispute that, that goes, you know, that goes back for decades between the Western Sahara and Morocco? Western Sahara was, was a colony of Spain. Um, in, in 1975, um, Spain, uh, basically in the sort of dying days of General Franco's, um, you know, sort of life, um, they pulled out of Western Sahara. Um, and straight away, uh, Mauritania, Morocco invaded, basically. Um, now, there was a war for 15 years. Um, basically between the Polisario Front and Morocco. Mauritania had pulled out in, in 1979 out of the war. Um, and in 1991, um, the United Nations Peacekeeping Force um, was basically instituted um, as, as, as the two sides basically reached a ceasefire. Now, the prime 
uh, goal of this peacekeeping force is to basically hold a referendum in Western Sahara, right? Um, but up until now, there's been no referendum. United Nations, um, you know, accepts that the Polisario Front um, are the sort of representatives of the Safawi, indigenous Safawi cause. Um, and they also accept um, that um, there should be a referendum. Um, but there has been some pushback from Morocco's allies, United States, and um, also France in terms of having this referendum. So up until now, 20 years after um, this referendum was supposed to take place, there's been a referendum effectively. Um, so this has basically meant um, that Sahrawi political uh, you know, activists are constantly protesting, they're constantly lobbying, uh, Morocco is responding sometimes with force, and, and the situation continues um, unabated. Up until, you could say, um, at the moment, obviously, there's been a lockdown, um, so people aren't sort of flooding onto the streets and protests, waving flags, um, as we would have seen before. Um, but that cause is still an ongoing one. But although we see encouraging signs in some countries, there are worrying trends in others. In the past week, there has been a 51% increase in the number of reported cases in my own continent, Africa, with the current challenge of obtaining testing kits it's likely that the real numbers are higher. One of the biggest political stories of this week has been the final breakthrough between Israel's longest-serving Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and its political challenger Benny Gantz. After more than a year in which three elections failed to form a government, the two leaders and their parties, Netanyahu's Likud and Gantz's Blue and White, agreed on a unity government. But what does it look like? Miron Rapoport, if I can speak to you about this, how did this breakthrough come about and why now? Why now? I think uh, there, there are a few reasons for that. Uh, first, yes, uh, people, uh, first of all, this is the corona. Uh, it, uh, although it didn't hit uh, Israel too badly, uh, uh, the, 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 um, it was very much felt and there was closure from almost a month and there was a very feel, a, a great feeling of crisis. So I, I think this uh, led to uh, a feeling that fourth election uh, is, first of all, almost impossible in times of corona. So I think that was the main thing. Second thing, uh, unfortunately, was that um, uh, the coalition uh, of, of the, let's say, center-left uh, uh, was not able really to form a government. The big problem was, unfortunately, uh, that uh, some of its members uh, were not ready to boost to be supported by the joint list uh, representing the Palestinian minority in Israel. And he had 61 uh, uh, votes for, for recommendation uh, out of 120 seats in the parliament. So it was uh, uh, theoretically enough. Uh, Lieberman's party, uh, 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 then uh, uh, Labour and Meretz, uh, some of the members we're not ready to support a government that is supported by um, the Arabs, by what is called by the right-wing propaganda uh, 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 supporters of terrorism. 
obviously, this is a huge win for for Netanyahu. What does Gantz and his party get out of being in a coalition now with Netanyahu and his party? First of all, uh, uh, as for Gantz, as for Gantz, uh, yes, uh, he is uh, supposed that what he claims uh, is to put his uh, uh, you know feet on the brakes on the brakes of, of, of the right-wing government that has been ruling Israel for the last uh, five years, uh, especially in what regards uh, the high court, uh, uh, the judiciary system uh, that was uh, under fierce attack by Netanyahu and his right-wing uh, coalition. And uh, uh, allegedly, Gantz was supposed at least to stop this attack because he, uh, one of his party will be the justice minister. Uh, and then, uh, uh, so the new judges that will be appointed, he will preside over the, over the committee, which uh, uh, nominates the new judges for the high court and for other courts. Uh, also, uh, the communication ministry that was also used by Netanyahu to really incite against uh, various population in Israel is also in the hands of Gantz, who is supposed to just, not a government of change, but at least to, to stop the, the, the attack against democracy. Uh, that's for Gantz. And uh, again, uh, he is quite inexperienced, and maybe he thinks that this is his way to become prime minister after serving a year and a half under Netanyahu as defense minister, getting more legitimacy uh, from from the public and even more experience. And then he can replace Netanyahu and then maybe in the next election will really change things. I want to ask you about Netanyahu's corruption charges. Obviously, he's, you know, he's facing a lengthy court battle at the moment that he's tried to evade partly through being re-elected. Now that he is back in power and he's been able to secure that for himself, is this kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card for him? I I don't think so. Of course, it's hard to, to you know, there could be all kinds of developments, but I don't think so. Netanyahu wanted to, to evade being indicted, and he didn't uh, succeed uh, even before. He, he hoped that the uh, police uh, uh, will not uh, uh, recommendate an indictment, and they did uh, recommendate an indictment, and uh, uh, the, the chief attorney uh, indicted him. And there will be a trial, and I think he doesn't have really a way out of it. There are some commentators who are saying that by having a veto power in uh, the, the committee which elects uh, uh, the judges, he could maybe influence uh, uh, the judges in the high court that will uh, uh, deal with his appeal if he's convicted uh, in the district court. You have to remember that the, the, the trial himself could take three or four years, so he could be even re-elected. And finally, I on the issue of the Jordan Valley, it's the issue of, of course, the annexation that was outlined in Donald Trump's notorious deal of the century. 
now it's being talked about again now that we have a government and now that we have a, a coalition that was formed. Is it now inevitable that Israel will enact this in the coming months? Politically, from the Israeli point of view, I don't see any obstacle to the annexation. Uh, the way the, the agreement is formulated, I think Netanyahu almost has no way than annexation. He doesn't have an excuse for his right-wing base why not to annex, uh, because uh, it's a very strange paragraph in the agreement. You know, everything has to be decided by both sides. Uh, and for the next first six months, there could be no laws at all, only laws that regards coronavirus, except for this exception that on the 1st of July, Netanyahu could, without consultation, Gantz and his uh, blue and white party, go for annexation. So it's, it's really, uh, uh, I don't see how Netanyahu will uh, explain to his voters why not to act. So in this sense, it's inevitable. But uh, there are other factors here that could uh, influence. First, of, co of course, we don't know what Trump's uh, situation will be in July and what will be his political situation and will he think that annexation helps him or maybe the other way around. Uh, then we don't know what kind of pressure will Arab countries like Jordan or even Egypt will uh, implement on uh, on the U.S. administration, maybe also on Israel. Especially, it will be annexation of the of the Jordan Valley, which is, you know, a buffer zone between Jordan and Palestine. So I think it will be very, very hard to swallow for Jordan. So uh, there could be pressure there. There could be also pressure from the Israeli uh, uh, security ad, uh, uh, apparatus, who doesn't like the, the, the idea of annexation, fearing that the PA will, uh, will evaporate. And uh, this, the, 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 the army uh, and the Shabak uh, are quite in favor of the PA, of the existence of the PA. They're quite afraid to have a direct rule of the, over the West Bank. So they don't like the idea that it will uh, uh, disintegrate. So there could be all kinds of pressure, but politically, I, I think Israel is on the road to annexation. <laughs> بما في ذلك الحكومتين الأمريكية والإسرائيلية إذا أعلنت إسرائيل ضم أي جزء من أراضينا وسوف نعتبر كل الاتفاقات والتفاهمات لاغية تماماً leave things here for today. Thank you so much to Amanda, Ragib and Miran for joining me on this week's episode of Dispatch. You can find all our episodes on Spotify, iTunes and Google Podcasts. Please follow us. Please subscribe and give us a cheeky rating. It goes a long way. Of course, you can keep up to date with all of our news coverage throughout the week, including Amanda's story about the Sahrawi activists by heading along to our website at MiddleEastEye.net. 
Thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay sane, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.